Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Happy Easter, everybody. Yeah, thank you. You can talk in church. It's not against the law to talk in church. So uh, thank you so much for being with us. Um, let me just say specifically to those of you that are here, and maybe you're like, yeah, my friends were hounding me, and they dragged me to church, and I'm here. I don't really want to be here. We're really glad that you're with us. If you would describe yourself as somebody that isn't a Christian, uh, man, thank you for being with us. All the doubt and skepticism and questions that you have, they're not off limits. We actually want to create a space for you to have those questions and if there's anything that we can do to process the claims of Christianity with you, we'd love to do that. Uh, if it's over coffee or over a beer or whatever, we'd love to sit down with you and, and chat about who Jesus is and why he came and what, what that's all about. Uh, so he, here's, here's the profound thing to me this morning, that all across our globe, the last several hours and the next several hours, a little over two billion people are going to be gathering to celebrate the risen Jesus, a little over two billion people, most of whom are not white, most of whom are not in the West, all over our world, transcending culture, transcending place and time, all across the globe, two million people have embraced the claim of Christianity, and they've basically said, I believe that Jesus is more than a religious leader. I believe that Jesus is more than a, a political kind of zealot, that I actually believe that Jesus is God and that he's alive. They've embraced Christianity. But what is it that com comes to your mind when you think of Christianity? Uh, depending on where you're from and your background and how you were raised, we all kind of walked into this room with our own thoughts and our own ideas of what Christianity is all about. Uh, some of you, when you think of Christianity, you can't help but picture just a, a judgmental and vitriolic mob of people that are absolutely filled with intolerance and hatred. Uh, if, if you don't believe what they believe, and, and usually it's this small sect of people, if you don't believe the way they believe, then you're out and you're actually hated by God. So when you think of Christianity, that's often what comes to, to some people's minds. Or, or maybe it's not that. It could be that when you think of Christianity, you actually picture something highly religious um, maybe even sacred and serious, where there's a lot of rituals and, and rites and all these profound, mysterious things that are happening. And you get the sense, yeah, this is sacred, th this is really important, but I think it's not for me. I think it's only for an elite few people, uh, type of person that, that would want to embrace this type of, of religion. It's only for serious people that want to do that, that serious, sacred thing. Some of you, if we're honest, and by the way, this is a safe place to be honest about what you think and where you're at. Some of you, if you're honest, when you think of Christianity, you can't stop thinking about just glorified fairy tales, right? I can't believe these people actually believe this stuff is what you're thinking. This is just a bunch of fairy tales similar to the Lord of the Rings that people have now just memorialized and they believe this stuff to be true. And it's like this idea of you have to check your brain in at the door and Christianity is only for gullible people that can't think for themselves. You see some of these images and you're like, yeah, this is just nonsense. Jesus floating in the air, Jesus walking on water. That stuff's crazy. Uh, let me tell you what I think most people in Oklahoma think about Christianity. Most people in Oklahoma, when they think of Christianity in their heads or they've interacted with Christianity, they think of what sociologist Christian Smith called therapeutic moralistic deism. Now that sounds, you know, those are some bigger words that he's stringing together, but really therapeutic moralistic deism is five different statements that he's pulling together, five different sets of beliefs that he says mark much of how people think of Christianity in the West. 
And I would say specifically in Oklahoma, this is how we think of it. Uh, The first tenet of therapeutic moralistic deism says that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Tenet number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Tenet number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. The fourth statement, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then finally, number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, some of you don't know my story, but this is actually my story of what I thought of Christianity growing up. Uh, I was born and raised in the church. I'd interacted with Christians my whole life. My family comes from a long line of Christians, and so I was kind of born into that in many ways. And the way that I thought of Christianity was identical to how Christian Smith describes therapeutic moralistic deism. Uh, I never really doubted that there was a God. Some of you here, that's kind of where you're at. You don't believe that God exists, but I never really doubted that there was a God. I just didn't think that he needed to be particularly involved in the affairs of my life. And really what I thought was that he really wants me to be happy and he wants me to behave and do what's right. So that's really what I got to do. I just got to, you know, believe that he's out there somewhere. If, he, if, if I need him in a desperate situation, he'll show up. But my job is just to live a good life and to try to behave and do the right thing. And when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Um, it wasn't until later in life, and, and really it was through reading the Bible, that I started to realize that actually the way the Bible talks about Christianity is very, very different than how I thought of Christianity growing up. That the way that the Bible talks about Christianity is, is really the opposite of therapeutic, moralistic deism in many ways. And so I just wonder, for those of you that are with us this morning, I just wonder, is there a chance that maybe the Christianity that you've embraced isn't actually real Christianity? Or, or maybe, maybe to put it this way, maybe you're here and you'd say you've rejected Jesus and you've rejected Christianity or you're skeptical about Christianity. And I want to pose the question to you, could it be that the thing that you're rejecting and the thing that you don't believe in is actually not real Christianity? A lot of times as I'm interacting with my friends that are not Christians, uh, they'll say, well, I can't become a Christian because if I become a Christian, I'll have to believe these things. And, 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 and most of the time, my response is, hey, no one that I know of that's a Christian actually really believes that. So you don't have to worry. It's okay. Or if I become a Christian, I have to do this or do that. I say, no, actually, the Bible does not teach that. And so I just wonder, could you be here today and maybe you're rejecting something that isn't real Christianity or you've embraced something that you think is Christianity that is really, really different. So here's what I want to do with you. I want to just look at the essence of Christianity. I want to talk about the risen Jesus and real Christianity and how that actually works and what it is to embrace him as the risen Jesus. So um, here's, here's where I want to take you. There's a lot of places that we could go, but I don't know of a better place to go than Philippians 3. Philippians 3 is really profound because in many ways it unpacks the, the heartbeat of Christianity, the heartbeat, the essence of what it is to be a Christian. And it's, it's fascinating to me because of who wrote it. We have this former skeptic. We know him as the Apostle Paul, but before he was Paul, he was known as Saul. He was a skeptic, and he was really more than that. He was antagonistic to Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with Christianity. In fact, he really, really hated Christianity. 
So it's pretty ironic, isn't it, that this former skeptic, this antagonist to Christianity is now one of the people that's actually defending and fighting for Christianity. There's something there that I want you to see. But in addition to that, it's not just who wrote it, it's what he says in this passage that I think is a big deal. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna read verse two because what he's doing is he's, he's clarifying for us the essence of Christianity and he's warning us against this really jacked up false version of it. So chapter three, verse two, here's what it says. And if you don't have a Bible, we're gonna have the words up on the screen. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who is Paul talking about? He's warning people about the dogs. And by the way, he's not warning people about like real dogs running wild in neighborhoods. He's actually referring to people. He's referring to a group of people that are inside of the early church known as the Judaizers. Now, if that's weird or strange to you, you've never heard of these people, let me just tell you a little bit about the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of people, a sect, if you will, inside of the early church that believed in and taught about Jesus. They actually believed in Jesus and they embraced Jesus as God and they believed that he rose from the dead, but they twisted a little bit of the message and they put the emphasis on, if you want to be right with God, if you wanna experience salvation, then you don't just need Jesus, you also need to keep all of the laws in the Old Testament that were specific to the Jewish people. In other words, if you wanna become a Christian, you need to first become Jewish culturally and, and keep all these laws. And the one that they emphasized the most was circumcision, right? That, that might sound strange, but if you read the Old Testament, circumcision was a big deal to the Jewish people. It was an outward sign that you belonged as a part of the people of God. So here's what they said. If you, if you wanna put it this way, the, the Judaizers had an equation for getting right with God, and here's what that equation looked like. It was Jesus plus Obedience to the law equals salvation. Jesus plus, you keep the law, and then God's going to be okay with you. How does Paul feel about that type of teaching? Well, he actually is really antagonistic against it. He actually hates this type of teaching, so much so that he calls these people, this group of people, he calls them dogs and evildoers, which last time I checked is not a compliment, right? He's not bragging on them, he's not complimenting them, he is throwing them under the bus. And very bluntly, here is Paul's point. Jesus plus you keep the law to get right with God is absolutely not Christianity. In fact, that's the opposite of Christianity. If that's what you believe, then you've twisted what Christianity is all about. Now, here's what I wanna point out to you, that um, we have in our culture today, in Oklahoma specifically in the Bible Belt, we have modern Judaizers. There are neo-Judaizers running around all over the place. And, and here's what I mean. I don't mean that there are a group of people out there that say, if you want to really become a Christian, what you need is you need Jesus plus you need to get circumcised. I've never had someone walk up to me at a coffee shop, thankfully, and say, hey, uh, I've got two really important questions for you. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I actually do believe in Jesus. I'm a pastor at a church and I do believe in Jesus. Okay, next question are you circumcised, right? Like, 
aren't you going to like buy me dinner first? I mean, this is like, we're getting really intimate here. Um, like I've never had that experience. So when I say that we have modern day Judaizers, I'm not saying that they're taking this exact teaching and teaching it today. But here's what I mean, that we have a group of people in Oklahoma that if you put out their salvation equation, how do I get right with God? Here's the way it would look. It would say Jesus plus fill in the blank equals salvation. So Jesus plus, you got to keep these rules and try to live a good life and then God's going to accept you. Or it's Jesus plus, you've got to try really hard to clean up your life and your past and, and be a different person. It's coming to Jesus and trying really hard to be a different person. Or it's Jesus plus, you need to get serious about the Bible and read it every day. Or Jesus plus, you fill in the blank. And the idea behind this is, is really this concept of if I obey then I'm accepted and loved by God. I can't tell you how many people I've interacted with in the last 11 years of doing ministry and living in Oklahoma my whole life, that that is exactly what they think the Bible teaches. I need Jesus, certainly, but I also need to keep the rules, and I also need to clean up my life, and I also need to be a different person. If I'm really going to be loved and accepted by God, if I'm really going to have my past forgiven and shame taken away, then I've got to do something for that to happen. It's not just Jesus, it's Jesus and something else. Here's the good news about man-centered religion. Let's just call it man-centered religion. Here's the good news about that. When you are killing it in your life, then things are going great, aren't they? If you have a good week, it's like God is close to me and he loves me and things are really, really great. But the second that you start to fail or the second that you, you do something that you're embarrassed of or, or you fall back into old patterns and give in to your darker side, the second you do that, your whole foundation for God loving you and accepting you is completely blown up and shattered. Here's the other problem with man-centered religion, and this is just interesting. It's like, how do you know that you've done enough for God to truly love you and accept you? Where do you draw the line? Like, okay, you now have done more good than bad God will accept you. Like, how do you know that when you die, you really will stand before God and he'll, he'll say, yes, you can come and be a part of my kingdom. Uh, how do you know that you've crossed that line and you've kept the rules? Now, he, here's the question. Is Paul like this really jacked up dude that because he's so immoral, that's why he doesn't want this to be the way it is? Is it because he's like inwardly just a troubled soul and he can't keep the rules and he's struggling and so he really doesn't want this to be the case and he's fighting against it out of just selfish reasons? No, I don't think that's why because look at what Paul says next in verse three. He says, for, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says this, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So he's saying it's not that I'm jacked up inside. It's not that I'm, I'm not this really moral person. That's not why I don't like this. He says, I have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And what Paul's about to do is basically just tell us how much better he is than we are. He's giving us his, his moral resume. Verse five, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he's saying like, you can trace my lineage all the way back. I was Jewish as you could be. I was as religious as you could be. As to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, he was one of those guys that really took the, the law of God 
very seriously. Uh, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, now let me just paint you this picture. If you read some of the Old Testament, it's going to give you a little over like 600 laws. I think it's like 615 or 618 laws that are in the Old Testament. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I am the Russell Westbrook of the Old Testament law. Like, I'm killing it. I'm absent. Like, no one can be as good as me. I've kept the law. You could take my life and put it on top of the law, and I would just be blameless. There's nothing about me that you could point to and say, see, he's failing morally. So Paul, he's, he's really, really good. He's really, really moral. But look at what he says in verse 7, and this is interesting. What did all of his right, right living get him? What, is all, what did all of his morality and his religion and him keeping all the rules, what did that get him? Well, verse seven says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Why, why does he say that? He says, you know what, all of that got me? Hey, I kept the rules, I, I did the church thing, I kept all the, the, the things that the Bible called me to, and I tried really, really hard. I was very passionate about all of this. I embraced man-centered religion like crazy. Do you know what it got me? Nothing. Nothing. Why is that? Well, John Calvin says this, this old church father from about 500 years ago. He says, why was this loss? Because they were hindrances in the way of his coming to Christ. And I love what he says next. For we are not received by Christ except as naked and emptied of our own righteousness. Hey, can I tell you something? Do you know what religion gets you? Religion basically teaches you that you really don't need Jesus, that you can do this by yourself. Religion essentially builds this wall between you and God where it's like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, he died, he rose, that's really important, but what's really important is that I keep the rules and I do the right thing. And and what, what Calvin is saying here is all of that does is it builds this wall between you and Jesus where you no longer sense and feel your neediness for him because you've got this. See, there are a lot of people in the room that you you would call yourself a Christian. You would say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the resurrection. But really what it is is like Jesus plus, if I keep these rules, then God is going to accept me. And if I just try to, to really live a beautiful, good life, that's what really matters. And, and what's happening with Paul is saying, no, none of that really mattered at all. It produced nothing in me but distance between me and God. Here's another way to say it. John Gershner, he was a professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Brilliant guy. I love what he says. He says, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. He says, hey, you want to know what really keeps you from God? It's all the stuff that you're doing that you think is really great. All the ways that you don't feel your need for Jesus. Uh, So some of you in the room, if we were able to go around and share stories, you would be able to talk about how you were born and raised in church and you experienced what I'm describing, this man-centered religion that really emphasized keep the rules, turn over a new leaf, try really hard. Others of you, you weren't born and raised in church, but you've interacted with Christians and the way that you hear of and think of Christianity is, well, that's for those people out there who can try really hard to keep the rules, not for me. And so for those of us that have been a part of a culture of religion, here's what that produces, and it's really, really scary and terrifying. And most people that I know, it produces the creation of a a false self. Do you know what I mean by that? 
Here's what I mean. It means that you have to actually present a version of you that isn't reality so that other people will love and accept you. Like, if, if, uh, if, if you live inside of a religious culture, where can you really be honest about what's going on in your life? Like, where do you share the deep, dark secrets of your soul, the things that have produced a lot of shame from your, your, your story and your past? Where can you be honest and bring those out and talk about that with other people? Hey, how you doing? Oh, uh, not really very good. My wife and I are on the verge of divorce. I'm addicted to pornography. I've fallen back into addiction. I think my marriage is going to end and my kids are, they really don't like me because I've got an anger problem that's uncontrollable. How are you doing, right? Like, where do you have that conversation? How do you be honest about what's really going on? So what happens is, hey, how you doing? I'm great, how are you? Oh, I'm great too. We present a false self to other people, and then what's really scary is we actually start to present a false self to God. This is the version of me that God wants, so I'm going to present that to God. And then I think most terrifying of all is that eventually inside of a culture of religion, you start to produce a false self to yourself. And all of a sudden, you don't know who you are anymore, and you get lost in the process. You know what's really scary about all of this? Religion and producing a false version of yourself is that the real you, deep down there somewhere that you keep hidden from everybody, can't actually receive the forgiveness of sins and the grace and mercy of a loving God who does not want a false version of you but actually wants the real you. So man-centered religion, it just produces this false self that we walk around with. Here, here's what happens with others. Other people, they don't produce a false self. It just produces despair and eventual rejection of Jesus and Christianity. I know so many people that they've said, you know, I've tried the Jesus thing. It doesn't work. I've tried the Christianity thing. Screw that. It's really unhelpful. I can't even keep those rules anyway, and I'm not going to create a false self. I'm going to be me, and I'm going to do me, so no thank you to Jesus and Christianity. This is what man-centered religion produces. And in Paul, here's what this produced in Paul. In Paul, on the outside, he was this amazing guy. He kept all the rules. He did the right things. He was very obedient. But do you know who the Apostle Paul was deep down on the inside where nobody else could see? He had inner turmoil and hatred. He had uncontrollable anger. His, his ideological devotion to his religion was so strong that he started to function in many ways like you would think of an ISIS member who is just brainwashed by their ideology. Here's what I mean. The Apostle Paul was a persecutor of the church. He actually oversaw the murder of one of the early church leaders. So on the outside, Paul's this amazing moral guy that's keeping the rules. But on the inside, deep down, the real Paul, he's this angry, broken, messed up man that just wants to kill and persecute other people because of what they believe. It's really, really scary stuff. Now, what happens to Paul? Well, I want you to read what's next because there's a dramatic shift that occurs in his life. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now listen to what he says. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's actually like a, a 
a profane word that he uses in the original language. He's like, he's using profanity right now. He's saying, you know what? I count this as just absolute trash and rubbish. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say it because you know, we, all, we have some religious people in here that would be offended. Um, but he, here, here's what he's saying. He's like, he's very adamant. All this old righteousness that I had, it's just trash to me. It's rubbish. I want nothing to do with it any, anymore. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And I love verse nine. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Hey, can I just ask you, what happened to Paul? Because he, in one instance, is this religious guy that doesn't need Jesus. He's keeping all the rules, and he's so passionate about his ideological religion that he's, he's actually completely hating the church, persecuting the church, wanting to kill more Christians. What happened to this man? How does he go from that to now way over here? He's saying, I just want to know Jesus. And I don't even care about trying to keep the rules anymore. Like, I don't want my own righteousness. I want his righteousness. I want to know him and be found in him. What happened to this man? Well, here's what happened. Paul encountered the risen Jesus. The one that he hated, the one that he was antagonistic against, the one that he was trying to squash the movement of, all of a sudden he's on his way uh, from one city to the next to persecute and arrest more Christians. And while being on the road to Damascus, the risen Jesus shows up to Paul, knocks him down off of his animal, blinds him, and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you trying to squash the church? Why are you doing this? Now here's what I expect to read in that story. If Jesus shows up to Paul, you would kind of think that Jesus is gonna crush Paul, right? hey, you are my enemy, you've been trying to kill Christianity, now I'm going to kill you. But rather than Jesus showing up and just crushing Paul, what he does is profound. Jesus shows up and he gives Paul mercy. And he gives him grace. And rather than crushing Paul, he invites Paul to be a part of what he is doing in the world. He forgives him and he lavishes his love on the Apostle Paul. And here's what's so crazy. Paul goes from being this persecutor of the church, this hater of Jesus, to now in this passage saying, I just want to know Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've met the risen Jesus. I thought it was a hoax. I thought it was ridiculous. I didn't believe it. And then I saw the risen Jesus who had just a few weeks before been killed on a cross and then he showed up to me. I saw it. And Paul's life has dramatically changed. Now let me just say a word to those of you that are, that are skeptics in the room. You're kind of like hearing this about the resurrection and in the back of your head or maybe very loudly in your head, you're going, that's insane. I cannot believe these people believe that a man who obviously died on a cross is really alive and, and you know something must have happened over the last 2,000 years. This has just been blown out of proportion. There's no way this is true. Well, can I just say a few things to you briefly? The thing that you need to wrestle with is the empty tomb. There's no viable historical explanation for the fact that there's an empty tomb. Here's what I mean. Um, Jesus' own mom after the resurrection, worshiped him as God. 
Before that, Jesus' mom thought he was crazy. After the resurrection, she worships him as God. Now, I know some of you, like with kids, moms in the room, you love your kids. Maybe you love your kids enough to worship them and believe that they really are God, the creator of all things. Probably not. She does, though. Now, if you're going, yeah, but maybe she was just a crazy mom that, like, was obsessed with her child. Okay, well, here's one that you can't get over. Jesus' own brothers and sisters, after the resurrection, worshiped him as God, right? You might be able to get your mom to worship you as God. There's no way that you would ever get your siblings to think that you are God, right? If you were not really risen from the dead, they wouldn't have worshiped him as God, going from being Jewish to embracing Christianity. In addition to that, all of these disciples in the early church, particularly the, the, the 12 minus Judas, particularly those close disciples of Jesus, all but one of them were brutally murdered claiming that Jesus was risen from the dead. They didn't get anything out of it. They didn't get to write a book deal. They didn't get to go on CNN and talk about it. They got no benefits from claiming that Jesus was alive, and they actually gave their life with that claim. No, we saw him. He is risen. He is alive. By the year 300, there was an estimated, listen to this, 34 million Christians. How do you explain that? 30 years after Jesus died, there there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians. 300 years after Jesus rose from the dead, there are 30 million Christians. So let me just explain this to you in a way that might make a little more sense with how just scandalous and insane that is that all these people embrace Jesus as the risen king. Um, When you hear the name Kevin Durant, what do you think? I I heard it. Someone said traitor. I have in my notes traitor or friend, right? That's my question to you. So answer me, is Kevin Durant a traitor or is he the friend of Oklahoma City? He's the traitor. Some of you are like, he's a friend, right? But you don't want to say it. You're in the minority because nobody likes him, right? In our city, Kevin Durant is not our friend. He's a traitor. That's just true. There are a few people that are still fans. Most people in Oklahoma City are not a fan. Uh, If you went into a coma for like a week and then you woke up from that coma and everybody in Oklahoma City was wearing uh, Golden State jerseys and Golden State shirts and, and everybody had Kevin Durant everywhere, memorabilia, Kevin Durant, and on the news, Oklahoma City, Kevin Durant's amazing, he's profound, I can't believe how great Kevin Durant is, you would honestly think to yourself, what happened in the week that I had been in a coma? Like, I woke up, something must have happened, something must have occurred that's dramatic to take the city of Oklahoma City from being a, a Russell Westbrook city to being a Kevin Durant city. How does that happen? What did I miss? The fact that this entire population, the, the known world at the time, 30 million people were saying Jesus is alive in that day, in that culture, it would have been even more dramatic than what I just described to you. What happened? What did I miss? Like, all these people that hated him and killed him, now they're saying, no, he's alive, really. You can take our life. You can take our house. You can throw us in prison. We're not going to deny we saw the risen king. This is what happens to the apostle Paul. He says, yeah, I saw him. And I go from being a hater of Jesus to being someone that wants to give my life away just so that I could know him. And perhaps the greatest evidence of the resurrection is that Jesus is still alive, changing people today. 
He's still changing people. How do you explain all the people that I know of that are saying, yeah, I, I, I was in this, and then it wasn't me. It was the power of God. He brought me out of it, and he gave me forgiveness and a new life and new identity and new strength to live. And, and Jesus isn't on vacation. He's like seated on a throne helping us and guiding us and leading us. He really is alive. So Paul, he says, yeah, I just want to know him. And all that old righteousness, all that old keeping the rules, it's all loss now. Now, here's what happens after Paul meets Jesus, and I'm going to wrap it up with this. Here's what happens, uh, a few things. Number one, he started to count everything in his, his life as loss just so that he could know Jesus, especially his righteousness. This word loss is important. Uh, in the Greek, this word loss, specifically in the New Testament, only shows up four times. It's only mentioned four times. Three times is right here in this passage in Philippians 3. And this word loss only comes one other time in the entire Bible, and it's in Acts 27. And here's what that word loss is being uh, used in in Acts 27. Paul is on a boat, and, and he's on a boat with a bunch of other people, and the boat starts to sink and the, the boat eventually does shipwreck and so as the boat is sinking what the what the people on the boat do is they take all the cargo and they start to throw it overboard and that's where the word loss is used it's jettisoning all the cargo overboard so here's the idea the picture here is that when you're when your ship is sinking you can either hang on to your cargo and lose your life or you can keep your life and jettison or have a loss of your cargo. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, when I met Jesus, I started to hold all of my righteousness and realize that either I have Jesus's righteousness or I have my own, but I can't have both. So I'm gonna jettison my righteousness so that I can just be found in him. He was the one that actually lived the life that I was supposed to live and he died for my sin and he is risen. So I'm throwing over my righteousness, no longer counting on that now I'm just counting on him that is what it is to be a Christian here's another thing that happens he starts to see himself as broken and in desperate need of being rescued this arrogant proud man that kept all the rules he says this in first Timothy 1 15 after meeting Jesus this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. <laughs> I'm the worst person I know. That's what Paul says. What a change in tune. And then here's the third thing that happens after meeting Jesus. He starts to actually love and desire Jesus more than anything else. One of the things that's wrong with cultural Christianity in Oklahoma is that because it's all about us, we actually don't want to give everything away to follow Jesus, which makes me think maybe what we're embracing isn't real Christianity. Paul says this in Philippians 3.10, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to share his sufferings. I want to become like Jesus in his death that, be in, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I don't care what happens. I just want to know Jesus. That's the result of meeting Jesus. So what does this mean for you? What does this mean for the people in this room? The essence of Christianity is not that you and I go on this journey to try to find God, to clean up our lives and do all the right things. The essence of Christianity is that God comes looking for us. And Jesus lived the life that none of us could have lived and the reason we celebrate the cross is because on that cross, he took all of the dark parts of your story, the sin and the shame and the guilt, and he died experiencing the justice and anger of God so that you wouldn't have to. 
And then he rose from the dead, and because he's alive, he's calling out to you this morning, and he's saying you, and you, and you, and you, and your story, and all that you really are, not the false version, who you really are, I'm inviting you to come to me and experience love, and to be embraced, and to be forgiven, and to have your shame cleansed, and to be given a new life, and a new identity, and to be invited into something bigger than yourself, I'm giving it all away for you. So here's the greatest thing that you could do on Easter. It's encountering the risen Jesus. And he's inviting you as you are. And listen, the message of Christianity is not, if you want Jesus, you need to really try hard. You need to fix yourself. You need to clean up. No, he says, if you are broken, if you are sinful, if you are lost, I came to find you. Come to me as you are, and I will take you. And I want to close with these words from Charles Spurgeon that really sum it all up. He says, on Christ and what he has done, my soul hangs for time and eternity. And if your soul also hangs there, it will be saved as surely as mine shall be. And if you are lost trusting in Christ, I will be lost with you and will go to hell with you. I must do so for I have nothing else to rely upon but the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived, died, was buried, rose again, went to heaven, and still lives and pleads for sinners at the right hand of God.